and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. We've got some lenses, we've got uh, LED lights, and some really interesting uses of ND filters in the flange. But we'll talk about that in a minute. First, Devin, what have you been up to, my friend? Uh, last week, I, I haven't had one day off. This Sunday is probably my first day off. Um been working at a uh, uh, two different studios mornings and nights so it's been i've been i and then on top of that i've been backlogging client work as well so even though today's my day off it's been a day of uh shooting review videos as well as a lot of client work so, so it's, when you're not actually doing work you're doing work to help me ex- out exactly and it's um and i actually got i don't know what to call it mildly sick uh one day in the middle of the week too i just i i I got a little bit of a cold for a couple of days and then still working like, you know, 16, 17 hour days. So uh, it was kind of rough there in the middle. But I finally got some sleep since this is my day off, quote unquote. So uh, I'm in good spirits. I've been uh, shooting on the coast doing a a couple of uh, coffee chain um, interview things. Long story. Not going to talk about that too much, but I mashed my head into something and got vertigo for two days straight. Like, I couldn't stand up, and I was falling over any time I tried to stand up. So uh, I guess moral wow. of the story is don't mash your head and make sure you have health insurance because, man, I had to go through some <laughs> physical therapy for a, a day, and, like, they did a whole bunch of weird neck things and head rotations and that's, all that crap. That's what people come here for, for advice like that. DSLR film noob, don't get concussions. That's your advice for the day. <laughs> all right, I think that's enough uh, talking about medical conditions. Let's go on to the... <laughs> What? There we go. The news. <laughs> Time for the news. First of all, I shouldn't place things behind me to try and activate them, but it seemed like a good spot at the time. Moving on to the news, we've got some interesting stuff here. The first one actually comes here from Devin, and this is an interesting approach to the adapters for mounting. Uh, you're getting a swivel top. This is the Tinder 210 Friction mount and it basically gives you looks like 360 degree motion with either a cold shoe a a rail mount or a light stand mount adapter the price is pretty spendy 169 to 228 dollars depending on the type you choose Devin, what do you think about this you're the one who put this in the show notes i think i think everything about this uh without having used one firsthand of course but i think everything about this is fantastic except for the price um I keep looking for solutions. I, I know I may be in the minority of somebody who likes rigging their camera and who likes using an EVF. I I know a lot of people just kind of like to have a monitor, like a uh, you know a five inch from a DP and stuff like that. But for me, uh, I'm trying to use EVFs. I'm in lots of situations where the camera's close to me. I'm in tight quarters, and EVF just works a lot for certain projects and for my workflow. And so I'm always looking for a way because. The one thing that I don't know, like people forget or they don't understand is that all the monitors on your camera are nice because you can move them. And then after you move them, they just stay and you don't have to lock a bolt and unlock a bolt to get the job done. And there's been a few uh, solutions for this, like from uh, Eldercron, if you pr- that's how you pronounce it, and uh, a few other brands uh, that kind of allow for friction movement, but they're always like cumbersome. They're always kind of like hard to put together and stuff like that. And there's parts that I like about parts that I don't. So I've actually been out shopping for 
a better EVF solution for when I'm fully shoulder mounting with a follow focus and everything else. When I'm properly like building up a kind of a big uh, rig, which I don't do for a lot of shoots, but on some shoots it constitutes having uh, most of the gadgets on the camera. And so in this situation, this looks like a pretty decent way because it's so flexible and how it's mounted that um, it could be a good way where I'm like, I just need to focus on a mounting point and then stick this guy on here and then I'm done. And at first when I was looking at it, I was kind of like, but rotating a monitor from its base as opposed to from its middle makes it kind of weird because it moves so far forward and backwards in space. Uh, but I, I then thought about when, you know what, I could actually probably mount this sideways and then that would allow me to twist the monitor, uh, kind of like you would a normal EVF. Cause a lot of monitors and EVFs have, you know, a side quarter 20 for mounting purposes. So that would kind of help to keep this entire thing really small, really compact. And then with all the mounting options, I figured there would be an easy way to put it together. I'm not sold on it yet. Um, I haven't pulled the trigger on buying it because I don't like that price. Almost $200 for, some... for this thing is pretty I know spendy. it's. I know, but I it's one of those where like no one is really hitting this with a home run. Like I have I've tried a few solutions and I haven't fell in love with any of them, and I'm wondering if maybe this is the one. What about the but, old-fashioned uh, solution of a swivel ball head? I mean, it, No, 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 that works. And that's why I'm saying this is this is and I feel like that's why no one's paying attention to building a solution for this because there's so few people who care about it. Uh, if if when you're in the field and the camera's on your shoulder, I don't have two hands free to unlock something, move the monitor, and lock it again. Uh, I mean, most people who've already tried know that friction mounts are, are uh, friction arms are really bad ideas for monitor mounts because as you jostle around, they'll just unscrew well, themselves. Well, you just got to just... make sure you put them on the right side or the left <laughs> side, depending on which way your monitor is going. This, though, I see the same issue. If you have this at any kind of angle, and uh, for those of you listening to this in audio, it basically is able to pitch forward and backwards and twist side to side, and it's a roll bar attached to a yoke, and so the yoke it allows it to pitch forward and backward while it spins. It's actually a really yoke. good description. And it's yeah, it's an it's an interesting design. But the issue I see here is that it's a thumb screw to go onto the bottom of your your monitor mm-hmm. or EVF. So you're going to run into the same issue that you run into with any other sort no. of, of swivel screw mount is that if you end up angling your monitor in the wrong direction, it'll want to spin free. There's no locking no, system. I don't believe that. Where's the locking that. system? Do you see it? I, I don't I don't believe that. The reason why. Uh, because I'm a man of physics and the reason why I think that it's, I think that it's less of an issue is because whenever I, uh, I I put a screw mount in the bottom of a monitor, even like a big heavy seven inch monitor or something like that, when I screw that in tightly, that almost never comes loose. The part that comes loose is the other end of the friction arm. And that's because though, since the weight is so far away from the point that's being screwed in, it has a large amount of leverage. So whatever motion is happening to that big mass that's hanging off of this arm gets multiplied by the time it gets down to its mounting point. So that's why I look at something like this where all the mounting points are close together and it's not something hanging out on a limb that I go, okay, maybe this could actually like hold things together and not fall apart on me. Um, It's not something that I would say like would survive being screwed in if you throw it in the back of a truck and you drive for an hour because, you know, as you bounce up and down on the road, you'll find a lot of things tend to loosen themselves up. But uh, for actually being out and shooting, it's one of those where I go, everything's close enough and the mass is close enough to all of these screw joints that I figure it won't be nearly as much of an issue as an actual friction arm would be. Uh, but, you know, real world testing would 
tell you the results as of that. As simple as the design is on this thing, I would say give it it's six not worth the months price. and we're going to see clones on eBay for like 15 to $20. Uh, this does not look like it has a lot of very complicated... It doesn't look terribly complicated. It, so. And it's not like it's an adjustable... Well, the friction, I imagine, is adjustable in the sense that it looks like it has very, very tiny hex screws that you could probably use to increase the friction that it naturally has when it's not in a locked position. It does have locking, too, which is kind of cool. So it's like it has friction to move it. And then if for some reason you never want it to move, it has locking screws around it, uh, which is a nice feature to add. But like, you know, it's not like a tripod head or anything fancy like that that has something that you can adjust on the fly. What so. about the rosette? Uh, mounting systems. I've seen a number of those out there where they have the the gnarled end that yeah, only fits no, in certain those, spots. I really like those, those too. Work, those work fantastic, and those are some of the solutions I've been looking at for my EVF, but that still requires unscrewing something with one hand while you hold something with another hand. Yeah, you got to get it permanently so, where you want it, and then don't touch it after that. It, and it's it's not a bad solution. If you're like, you know what, I'm never going to like pull my camera forward and like flip the monitor and like shoot low with it or something like that. If you're kind of like permanently in one position with the camera, yeah. uh, then those rosettes work perfectly because they aren't going to move. And you most of them, too, high-quality stuff, you know, uh, you can lift the camera by rosettes, and a lot of that stuff is going to hold up. But uh, in this case, I'm trying to find something in between, and I've got my eye on it, but I'm not sure I'm going to pull the trigger because you're right. It just, it, it, I can't justify the price when it doesn't seem like there's a lot going into it because we're not talking fluid bearings or anything fancy like that. We're probably just talking metal on metal friction, like, you know, really basic stuff. So now, another expensive item on the list in the news here, and something I'm actually kind of excited about this is a, a new device from Kippen. It's an adapter that allows you to basically attach, and this is something we've seen before, by the way, an EF adapter. So it's an EF lens adapted to a Sony body E-mount. So you have that flange distance, and it's got the electronic controls. So the same story as usual. But the difference here is that it has a slot to drop in an ND filter in between that space. Now, with that, you can adjust the ND filter using a cute little nub, or you can change it by just simply taking out the ND and putting in a different ND, uh, depending on your approach. And this gives you that ability inside of the space between the adapter and the lens uh, for a price of about 400 looks like, yeah, a little bit over $400 for this setup. Now, a lot of cameras out there offer this in the higher end, but you don't get this very often in a DSLR or any of that form factor. You don't have variable NDs built in. With this, you have one ND. Uh-oh, what just happened? <laughs> Uh, if you're joining yeah. us now, we just went off air and are back on again. Something went wrong with the YouTube broadcast. No idea what, but uh, we're back. We were talking about the Kepin adapter. Uh, this is an ND filter that is able to go between your camera body and your lens. Devin, you've taken a look at this as well. Do you think the price is, do you think this is overpriced for what you're getting? Yeah, well, I mean, you. It does work as a variable ND, right? That's the point of rotating that uh, ND filter in there. Yes. Um, the thing is, is that I don't imagine it's the world's best ND. You don't think and so? For 450 That That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I'm not sure that this is going to be the best variable, because variable NDs are inherently a little flawed. It's really hard to make one that's really good. 
but they get cheaper as you get smaller. And this is probably only like a 36 millimeter diameter for the internals there. So they could theoretically use a really nice one for really affordable. Is Kippen using a really nice one, DJ? I mean, with a name like Kippen, <laughs> of course, <laughs> right? Right. Well, because I've uh, Kippen has a line of variable NDs, don't they, at different thread sizes? Yes, and they're not too bad, actually. They are a no. little bit purple casting. Uh, you do get an advantage, though, here, because it's not on the front of the element. It's a little bit more controlled how it interacts with your camera uh, sensor and the back of the lens element, plus... You're focusing all the light there at the end, so it's at the end of the path instead of the yeah. beginning of the path. So, so a little bit so less it does, uh, wackiness. Yeah. No, I get it. Um, it does seem a little pricey to me, though, still. it's, uh, You know what? If for, it, it wouldn't be pricey if I was like you, and I had a bunch of really nice Canon glass, and I had a Sony, and I was like, all right, you know, this is great. Let's do this. Um, as long as the ND actually was up to snuff, I see this being super useful because I'm always uh, using NDs and worried about NDs while I'm shooting outdoors. I know a lot of other people aren't. They're either turning up their shutter speed, which makes their uh, motion look weird. Look really weird. Yeah. Um, or they just close on the iris and they're like, I don't do shallow depth of field outside. That's just how it is. Uh, so I find this super important in order to maintain that control, especially for someone like DJ who cannot stand shooting anything above F2. Hey, so- hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I shoot above uh, F2. That happens sometimes. That- <laughs> so, so it's, um, so I see it being really useful. And then the fact that you're also getting autofocus with it too, I think it's the first time that you've had a product that kind of mixes all these three things in one, because I've seen the ND, it wasn't variable, but it was like, it had, I think three different NDs you could flip in front of it for micro four thirds. Cause it's such a small sensor size yeah. for adapting, but there was no autofocus uh, adapter going on or anything like that. So I think, it's this price this way because they can get away with it. No one else has this product out. So it's kind of exciting in that regard. And I'm not even sure, too, because it almost is kind of a narrow use case uh, that a lot of people are going to buy it. I say the make or break on it really depends on how well the autofocus works. If it works as well as any other adapter out there, then I could say it's justified in its price. But I don't you see know. why it wouldn't work any different from their other electronic uh, autofocus adapters, which are, you know, reasonable. They're as good as any yeah. of the other uh, AF adapters for Sony cameras. Now, for me, this is a, a probably a $160 uh, Lightcraft Workshop uh, ND or variable ND filter. And I have to do these different rings all across right, my to step range it up or down. to step it up or down. And if you miss one ring, suddenly you can't shoot wide open with your primes. And it used to be that if you bought Canon primes of the same uh, generation, they were all pretty much across the board the same filter size. But now right. they've been they've been kicking out 72s, uh, 80, 84, I think, is another number that you see. The, yeah. the 24 F1, uh, F1.4 Mark I and Mark II have different thread sizes. The new uh, 24 to 70 has a different thread size than I'm used to. So it used to be you could just buy the bigger one and you were good to go. Now you have to have a bunch of these step rings. And if I yeah. could just use this... I mean, that replaces probably like six different pieces of kit that I would normally have to carry with me. And when I'm changing lenses, I don't have to futz around with trying to freaking find the slippering adapter to go onto the front of my camera. Yeah, and for me personally, uh, I went a little bit cheaper. I actually got a variable ND from Tiffin, and I went ahead and just got a 72 
which since I don't have Canon glass and a lot of my Micro Four Thirds primes are much smaller than 72, uh, it helps to take care of some of the issues because some of your cheaper uh, NDs, variable NDs that is, will have vignetting. Uh, as well as a few other things that go on with the fact of how they work and everything else. So having one that's slightly oversized for the lens isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but yeah, you, I, I, you know, got a whole stupid thing of uh, your rings and crap that I need to like screw together, and then they get too tight and you can't get them apart. Well, and that's the other interesting thing here. So you get that weird uh, banding issue on wide-angle lenses when you put a filter right. in front of it. But if you put the filter at the last point before it goes to the sensor, you're going to avoid that wide angle banding that you'd normally get because the angle of refraction for light going into it is straight. So right. with this setup, you could use variable NDs on your 16 to 35 millimeter F2.8 adapted to your Sony lenses, and you wouldn't have that same banding issue, which means you could shoot wide open, which wide open... It- no, yeah, wide open. I know you're all about the wide open, but uh, no, that's exactly right. And I think for especially trying to keep the package small, uh, I think that's what this works amazing for. Because in those situations where I have a wide angle lens that ne- doesn't necessarily have threading, uh, like the Rokinon, I think uh, eight millimeter cine glass doesn't have any threading on it. Uh, for things like that, I'm breaking out rails in a map box and I'm sliding things into uh, you know NDs four by fours into a map box. So. Uh, something like this really does help to keep it really small and compact. And so I I think they can get away with that price. And I don't think that that's too far out of bounds. Um, uh, you know, if if the optics are good and the autofocus works, which I we both agree, I think would be just fine on this. Yeah, the electronic adapter by itself, I believe, uh, runs about $260. So they're really only adding uh, 150 bucks or so for the variable ND portion of this. Definitely right. worth checking out. Interesting. I'm excited for it. Next up on the list here is actually something uh, Devin recommended to me, and I was kind of stating or waiting for his review on this <laughs> before I bought one because he's he's kind of talked him up quite a bit. And this is the VPad 150 LED light panels. Uh, these light panels are now down to like 35 or 40 dollars. They have a very decent spread, and I don't know if you can tell or not, but I'm using one right now. I'd point the camera at it, but, uh, you know, that's not going to work. So uh, basically, Mm -hmm. I I just got one. I'm excited about it. It has very good throw. uh, Well, not good throw. Excuse me. It has a very good good spread, spread. but not very good throw. You can get about three feet a distance out of this, maybe four if you're lucky, but it really spreads out like what you would see with a CFL light. I like this one for 30 some dollars. I think it's pretty valuable for that price range and it's capable of running off of a two amp barrel pin, 12 volt adapter that I use oddly enough for all of the hard drives in my collection. So I haven't had to power (laughs) this off of an MP battery. Devin, you've got several of these going from small all the way up to (laughs) monstrous. I've got lots of different uh, cheap LEDs. I'm all about the cheap, uh, usually Chinese uh, LED light panels. And it's amazing that they've gotten a lot better uh, they did start from a place that most people could, you know, snuff their nose at and be like, ah, that's garbage. But uh, it's kind of impressive how far they've gotten. Uh, like you said, though, there is not a long throw on this, even at maximum intensity. And a lot of that has to do with when you see this kind of pattern over the front of it, uh, which looks like a tiny grate, but it's just a big piece of white filter. That usually means. Uh, that there isn't actually LEDs behind that big white piece. It usually means that this is actually like a a modern LED TV that's edge lit. So, uh, and then too, whenever you see something that does multicolors, 
that usually means half intensity as opposed to one that doesn't do multicolor. Not that each of these come in different, you know, um, you know, because this one doesn't isn't sold in just like a 5600K or 3200K. They just they sell one that does both and you have to deal with it. But that means half of the LEDs are only for one color and the other half's for the other color. And with it being edge lit means that you probably only have like 30 or 50 of those uh, lights, uh, those LEDs, which means you aren't getting a whole lot of light, especially after you like refract it and it goes through the diffusion and everything else. So. Uh, it's a, it, this works great, especially like the one you've got, which is, uh, you know, about this size. I was going to show mine too, but I'm actually using it as well. <laughs> so we're both, you know, uh, so well, but, uh, it's, it's about this big, which means that it'll fit in a camera, any camera bag just fine. And it actually works really well for an on camera light. I know that it's not necessarily the most flattering situation, but if you are doing documentary or ENG, um, the fact, the fact that it has a th- short throw isn't as important because you're usually pretty close to the subject you're filming, but having a big soft source looks way better than being up close with a hard source. It's going to give you a lot of harsh shadows and is not going to look flattering. Um, because uh, hard, hard shadows, I'm all about them. Don't think I'm some guy who walks around like with China balls all the time. And that's how I light everything. Uh, but if you don't have much of a choice in how you position that hard light and you're just shining it from the front, it has a specific look and it's usually not that fantastic. So having something like this, even though it's a short throw, uh, I think it works. One thing too, is that the build quality on it's fantastic. Uh, there's a lot of LED lights that are cheap in this price range where the build quality is garbage. And while I have one or two critiques about it, which would probably, you know, come up in the interview, uh, when I kind of finish this off, uh, the big thing with it is that, uh, I'm really impressed with how tough it is. Uh, the, the body of it's really nice. I like that it has, uh, it doesn't have a locking, uh, battery mount, uh, which is a little disappointing, uh, but the battery mount is strong and it's good. I like that it has a switch because a lot of them don't even have switches. So you always have to reset your light when you turn it on. And it's got battery meters and it has external power. There's so many of these that don't have external power and they require you to use batteries. And I always like the option to be able to hook up to an AC if I need to in order to hook these up. Um, same thing with this guy. I've got a giant one that DJ was also checking out. Oh, wow. Um, which those that are listening, it's it's well over the size of my face. But... Uh, this is, guy that's too like, is uh, the, what 20, 20 inch monitor size is that no uh it's 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 probably a foot by ten inches or so it's okay. probably twelve by ten um and it's uh it does it does actually dim down all the way it's really soft really flattering uh and you know it'll do the um the calvin as well it'll do the thirty two hundred calvin as well as the other one and the one thing I find disappointing with these lights though is that you have to use both batteries, uh, which is a little disappointing because sometimes you only have one that works, but this requires two batteries in order to run. Uh, But I've also got that, which is going to be probably in the same video as well, talking about that. And that guy goes for 100 which I'm not sure is worth the price compared to a lot of the other things you get because that still has a crappy throw, but it is amazingly soft. And if you're up close to your subjects, that is a beautiful light. If you're doing macro photography or anything like that, that big soft source... Uh, it makes it feel like you're working with a 12-foot softbox, so it's great. Yeah, being able to mount these in a vertical pattern is something that I was kind of excited about, uh, having this sort of up and down, and mm-hmm. the fact that you can kind of sneak a camera in between two of these and get this within you know three or four feet of your subject that really fills in the light pretty well. 
And a lot of times when I'm shooting interviews, I will have some close-up shots and I want to be able to, to make it look like light is coming from a window, even though it's dark out or whatever. And, and being able to have these close to the subject is really nice. It's also way better than the straight beam formed from the torch LED bolts that I also love, but don't use quite as much. Uh, basically, I might order three or four more of these just to have really? them around. You like it that much? At, $39 a pop, man. And I, yeah. I, I have a ton of little power cords that will run these. So I, I don't really need the battery option per se. I have better lights for that sort of application that run off of large batteries and for basic lighting, setting up little things and, you know, carrying them around, I'll just plug them in. I, I can't see why I wouldn't buy more of these for that price, a whole set for 150 bucks. Wow. That's, that's cheap, right? It is. It is cheap. I mean, if you're in a situation where you don't need absolute control over your light, because this is something that you wouldn't use uh, barn doors on or anything like that because the spread is so wide. That's where most of your energy is going is in all directions. All right. Next up on the list here, I've gone kind of wacko when it comes to Micro Four Thirds. And I don't mean wacky. It's just uh, I made a joke as I was typing this out that I've gone prime time. Well, uh, I currently own now an entire set of Voigtlander Primes. And originally, I'd kind of pulled away from that because they're so expensive. Uh, initial offering prices were somewhere in the range of twelve to thirteen hundred dollars a pop. Now you can get these Voigtlander lenses: the seventeen point five millimeter f zero point nine five, the twenty five millimeter f zero point nine five, and the forty two point five millimeter f zero point nine five. All of those are under $750 on Amazon, eBay. And if you look around used, uh, I think I paid around 500 bucks a pop for this. So that's $1,500 for a very sexy prime set. I feel like the only reason why you have a full set is because of an accident. Yeah, well, um, (laughs) so Devin's laughing. Occasionally, uh, for sport, I hop on eBay and uh, I put on, you know, I put out ridiculously low bids, and I I don't generally expect to win. But when I do, I end up with a lens. And in the case of the 42 millimeter, (laughs) uh, 42.5 millimeter f 0.95, I ended up winning that guy for... Uh, like 550, I think 575, something mm-hmm. like that. I wasn't wasn't planning on buying it, but now I have <laughs> but now it. You, congratulations! And I will say that the the 42.5 f2.8 is a substantially better build than the 17.5 and the 25, as far as uh, loose bits. So I'm mm-hmm. operating this right now. It's very smooth throw very good feel in the hand and nothing wiggles inside of it on the other hand the 17.5 it kind of has like a little bit of a jiggle right there that you can actually see which is unfortunate and the same thing in the 25 uh, it's got a little bit of wiggle right here That, that is something to be mindful of both voigtlander and slr magic i feel like uh which will be interesting when we both bring our 25s uh to nab but uh, both of them seem from I hear from both sides have uh, small quality control issues, so that's always something to keep mindful of. I haven't had problems myself except with the SLR Magic, the cheaper thirty-five millimeter that only steps down to one point eight. Uh, that lens has quite a bit of wiggle in the throw, so repeatable focus is pretty difficult. You just have to keep focusing it by eye. It's not the end of the world. And for a uh, prime lens, it only costs maybe 200 bucks or something like that. 
Uh, it's not terrible, but uh, it's something to keep mindful of is that I've heard, you know, stories of loose focus wheels on both uh, the Voigtlanders and the SLR Magics. They're all – the image quality out of the Voigtlander lenses is really great. I can't wait to mess around with Devins and compare side-by-side side <laughs> to see uh, how they how they stack up. Uh, moving on down the line, I, I've got this. I'm using it right now. It is the Magwell, Magewell, Magwell. I don't know how you pronounce it. It's a USB to HDMI converter, and a number of you have asked why I have – why? delays in my audio and that's because i'm using a gh4 for the video capture but the audio is coming in via an alpha sound card uh separately so because of that there's some weird issues that i haven't quite worked out yet now they are selling for 3.99 a nicer version from Inogenie, and that is capable of capturing 4K uh, 30 frames per second via HDMI. Devin, do you see what? any reason to 4K <laughs> to spend 4K for 400? Uh, no, absolutely not. Okay, um, that's what I thought. This is uh, wall. If if you need it, just because of your production workflow or something like that, you're like, I need a capture card and I need it to be 4K because that's our broadcast format or something like that, or your DIT or something, um, then, you know, 400 really isn't that bad of a price. But, you know, a lot of people don't have 4K sets. Uh, a lot of even fewer people have 4K monitors. Because uh, I feel like that's even more exclusive. As much as we talk about a lot of 4K monitors, and DJ's got a giant 32-something-inch or 40-inch 4K monitor. Love um, it. <laughs> a lot of people, I feel like, don't have 4K monitors. Uh, and very few people have actual 4K TVs or even a way to put 4K in that TV. So 4K as a distribution format is still way out there. I know that we're already jumping on top of acquisition, and that's just because of its utility to be able to... Uh, fix things in post or visual effects to have that extra detail. Um, it's the same thing as like shooting raw. There's no raw uh, distribution format, but having that ability in post-production can go a long way on projects. Uh, in this case, though, for like normally where these cards are used, broadcast streaming and what have you, uh, nobody's dealing with 4K. Uh, I think YouTube maybe technically streams 4K, but I don't believe Twitch does or other networks, but now YouTube it's, actually uh, slams it down to seven twenty p. Yeah, okay. So, YouTube is still early on it. About having sixty frames per second, which you know, I mean, right? Sweet. No, no, no. And and for the gaming uh, let's plays and everything else, I get the sixty. I'm not against the sixty, but uh, I feel like if you just wait on this until people actually like a lot of people have four K TVs and like. Google starts selling a Chromecast that'll display 4K footage on your 4K TV. I mean, like when it's that ubiquitous that everyone, generally everyone who's really into tech and whatever has 4K sets, then this 4K capture card will probably be $200. Like by that point, there'll be enough people selling and making chips because I imagine the way that this works is it has a built-in H.264 encoder. Uh, you know, chances by then it'll have an H.265 encoder. And it'll be able to fit your 4K stream inside of USB 2.0, you know, with no CPU overhead and stuff like that. So I feel like let's if you not just go to USB 2.0. Come on, man. Let's <laughs> keep it in the three range. It does, well, I'm just I'm saying in terms of the necessary bandwidth, because yeah. my 1080p capture card only needs 2.0 because it's already doing the conversion inside the chip rather than going raw data to the CPU and having it crunch it down. So because of that. 
uh, I'm like, just wait on it. Like, obviously, if you need it, you need it. But otherwise, you know, he bought a really nice one because I wouldn't spend that much on a capture card, 300 bucks. I've got one right here. This is the one I'm using for this stream right now. And uh, it is, does get kind of warm. It is USB 3 to HDMI. And it does a good job. It's exactly and what it, I wanted. But uh, it's doing the conversion inside of there, right? It's like yeah, definitely. So crunching it down for you, it flies right through there, and it shows up as what appears to be a webcam on my desktop. So for this sort of application, it's really nice. I got really fed up with trying to to change settings on an actual webcam, and this was my solution. I wasted three hundred dollars. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it for everybody, but if you want. Uh, to capture good quality video or you want to do a stream with a real camera, that's uh, definitely a way to go. This 4K option, I mean, really, we're a ways away from probably seeing and 1080p streams available for live streaming. If you're just well, capturing it 1080p for, at 60, too. Because yeah. um, I feel like some some Twitch stuff will do 1080p at 60. I'm not totally sure on that, but I feel like, or maybe it's like I 720 at 60. I think if you don't 60. go to uh, YouTube, instead you go to one of the other platforms like Twitch or Livestream, they are capable of capturing 1080p. Uh, but it's still, I think a lot of it is, is sort of streamed live at one resolution and then they, they upload it to the server at the higher resolution in post. Right. But one thing to keep in mind, one thing to keep in mind with all this stuff is that it will get cheaper in price. This, uh, for those that are maybe old enough to remember, uh, the days of analog, uh, back then, capture cards never got any cheaper because it cost good money to make good electronics to get a nice quality recording of an analog signal. And if you bought a cheap one, you just ended up with a crappy signal and there was no way around it. Since everything now in the video production workflow has gone digital, these capture cards are cheap because they're just taking ones and zeros, turning them to other ones and zeros. And it's not like a tuner card or other things that require like high quality capacitors and all kinds of stuff in order to get a really clean analog signal. So, you know, back in the day with analog, I'd be like, that's how much good quality, you know, costs. So you just pay it now. It doesn't matter. It's not going to ever get any uh, cheaper. And now that everything's digital, it's gotten way cheaper to get pristine, perfect quality capture uh, that, you know, we just imagined wasn't a thing back in the days of analog. Now, I wanted to move on to talk about this guy right here. And this is a camera I've been complaining about off and on for several months. Uh, this is the e- e- Zcam E1 um, from Zcam.com. And uh, they initially uh, released this as a Kickstarter. And I was one of the people that got on the Kickstarter. Uh, now it's available for pre-order. And I think it's even shipping on BNH if you take a look there. I wanted to update you guys on the firmware that's going on or what uh, the firmware release that they've given me for this camera. Uh, It's only available through uh, the Facebook threads and through the private forum. So you have to kind of search for it. And I can add a link if anybody's interested in. I don't know how many people besides myself are actually using this camera, but they're up to firmware version 0.26. And uh, that's up from 0.18. This is uh, a number of revisions. And I can finally start to say that this camera is working pretty well. Uh, Image quality has gone up substantially since then. Features have improved. Still no audio level meters on this freaking guy. And uh, some of the controls can really only be accessed properly via a cell phone uh, and Wi-Fi, but they've gotten a lot better. Uh, Where before I would say this is a definitely don't buy, 
uh, with version 0.26 out there, I would say if you have an application for it, I would consider it. It's still a little spendy at uh, $699, I think is what they're uh, offering it for pre-order. But if you think about this compared to a G7 or the GX8, uh, this is capable of outputting HDMI uh, while you're recording. So that means you have a video monitor that you can use and it does offer up the same size sensor from Panasonic as those cameras as well as the GH4 I'm shooting on. And now that they've sort of gotten the quality settings working, it's pretty darn good. Uh, It doesn't have all of the settings that you'd see in a GH4 body as in it's missing uh, uh, basically color uh, correction that it can be done in post and the Z log, which is supposed to be a log format for this is utterly useless. I don't even <laughs> bother, bother with it. It's crap. But, uh, that's where I'm at on the, the G or whatever, the Z cam E1. Devin, you, you interested in this now that I've like started to it's, turn around uh, on it? Now, now that you don't absolutely hate it, right? Oh man, my I, gosh. I, I was going to throw it away when I first I heard about it. it so much about how you just didn't want it anymore. Um, no, it's good to hear that the company is actually dedicated to the product. Uh, I think that's pretty important for them moving forward. For me, um, it's it's a bit of a you know I have to compare that. It's I know you mentioned like the G7 that is right in that price point, but I also would consider looking at some of the Blackmagic offerings because they have some tiny mini Micro Four They're Thirds about cameras. Twelve hundred bucks though, aren't they? Yeah, but they they you know include lots of features depending on which one you want because they got a four K one I think is twelve hundred. Well, uh, the okay, 1080p so, one with the built-in SD card is uh, cheaper than that. Yeah, so the $1,200 one, that uh, does use Canon batteries, but there's basically almost zero control of it unless you have, uh, what, a, a shuttle, one of their monitors? Is that the case, or can does it have Wi-Fi built in? Uh, I don't think it does. good question. I thought uh, you had to control it all by wire uh, via... For the, for the studio you did, for the studio you did, that's me. I don't know what what the heck I just said that, you know this this Amazon Echo thing has been flipping out more often than uh, it did in the past. Maybe something's <laughs> wrong. But back on topic, uh, no the products the Black Magic Mini ones. I think what you're talking about the 4K one that's built for just studio use. Uh, you're right. You need to hook it up to a uh, Black Magic ATEM switcher if you want to control it, uh, or you know you hook it up to their remote uh, monitor that we talked about the firmware update last week. Uh, but no, they've got another one that captures two SD cards uh, that's meant for, what's it called, the micro cinema camera, I think, which is supposed to be like, uh, uh, kind of like we talked about last time, a dedicated drone camera or what have you. No, that has buttons on it and a menu. Uh, as far as I know, it doesn't have a screen. Um, yeah, but- that one's missing the screen. Uh, do I don't see Wi-Fi on the specs. So how do you control this guy? It's got a record button. What more do you need? Uh, well, yeah, but what if you want to like change <laughs> settings? Uh, no, I think you do that with uh, SD cards. To be honest with you, um, I think that yeah, I think it's configured on an SD card. Don't quote me on that. It no, I think you just you need to hook up a video monitor to it. I think that's it. I thought the only way you could control this, uh, and again, Devin and I are speculating, but this has that uh, that nine pin adapter right here that you're supposed to plug into and use. Uh, standard control code in order to to get it to do yeah stuff. you could do that but i think uh you just need to hook it up to a monitor and it has a menu button and you can flip through the menu and change things it's not eloquent 
but elegant, but you can do it, I believe, just by having any ordinary monitor or watching the HDMI output. So, I mean, you're right, but I'm just saying that's something to consider because this camera, um, you know, may not have the screen built in and stuff like that, like the Z cam, but I kind of like the way that this uh, Blackmagic pocket sensor looks like. I know I may be kind of alone in that, but I do like the way it looks. Um, and I like the small form factor and I like the expansion port and things like that. So I can have different options for it and fit it into different places. Cause that's, that's why I feel like the Z cam is built for us. They're trying to make a drone camera, a mini action cam, something that's like better than a GoPro and black magic's offering isn't a terrible way to go about. It's just a different way. So it's one of those where I'd really have to consider use cases, but it is kind of making me more interested. I still want to see. Uh, if it can start producing a better image straight out of it, because a lot of the time when I'm using things like action cams, I'm not doing log or like pro, uh, pro tune or anything like that, because I'm like, I gotta go, I gotta get this shot and I gotta go. I'm usually on a much shorter time frame. So, um, but it's, it's a good sign to see. Cause we talked about last week. I want to bring this up real quick. Last week, we were talking about what could the rumor that the GH four was going to get some radical firmware update that was going to keep people happy until next year for the GH five. If you recall, yeah, I do, and and uh, so I just got me thinking, and I started looking, and I go, man, they have really been updating the crap out of the GH4. I know it's not all features that everyone has been using, uh, but things like um, uh, adding timecode HDMI output uh, is an important thing for some workflows. Adding an anamorphic mode, yeah. which is like a very narrow use case, but still like gives flexibility to the camera. Um, as well as then the vlog function and stuff like that. Like they've really gone a long way in adding a lot of smaller features that honestly don't apply to probably most of their users. Uh, but I think it goes to show that they're very dedicated to making the best product they can for their customers. So, um, I mean, I'm not a fanboy cause there's plenty of things that are wrong with the GH3 and GH4, uh, no cameras perfect, but it's, uh, it's, it's something that like makes me like, I, I, it kind of made me reanalyze and go, you know what? Firmware updates can actually do a lot depending on the hardware. So I don't know, man. If Zcam keeps it up, uh, I don't know. I may be looking around for one. Yeah, I'm looking on uh, on B&H right now, and it looks like they are actually shipping. And the big complaints I'm seeing here are <laughs> basically like not ready for prime time, kind of crummy, you know, needs like updates. Hopefully they'll get the firmware sorted out. And as you move down to purchases that are later on, the the, the ratings seem to get higher. Um, when I first got this, I will say the 0.18 firmware on this was junk. This thing was basically useless. I might as well not have even bought it. But uh, now at 0.26, uh, it's turning around, and I'm guessing by the time they get from beta into prime time, which would be a 1.0 firmware <laughs> release, right? Uh, it'll actually have everything that I want in it. Still, I am using it. Um, when you see the Ceremonic review that it's going to be uh, posted probably today, uh, that one has a lot of shots from this camera because I was taken out doing some other things with it. Last thing on the list here, and then we'll get out of here, is actually this keypad. Now, Devin threw this in the notes, and I was quick to jump on his case because he marked it at $30, and you can actually find this for about $5 on Amazon. Still, the idea here is not that the we're arguing over the price of the keypad. It's actually that you can use this keypad as a dedicated editing functioning tool. Now, Devin, tell me more about this. Uh, yeah, I mean, for 
what what we're looking at here is a small like you know six by five or something like that grid of keyboard buttons and usually uh, they do post a picture in the instructable that uh, they're looking at the x keys which x keys is kind of somewhat of an industry standard uh, company that produces lit keys that you can customly label and program on a lot of different systems to do a lot of different things and those usually go a little bit past 100 bucks 130 bucks uh, and so some edit suites will have that set up for certain uses. Usually they're mostly dedicated to doing live production stuff or for doing stuff in a rack where you don't necessarily want to pull out a keyboard and all that kind of junk. So, um, but here they're pointing out, Hey, you know what? You can just get a really cheap keypad that's USB and write macros to it and then just stick on your own buttons. And so here, um, the instructable, it's not like it's anything complicated or necessarily new, uh, but more of just like kind of like, hey, here's a really nice example of somebody who's doing it, you know, right, per se, where they print out all the little uh, buttons and they label them and they tape them to the keypad and everything else. And it's just a way for you to take really complicated stuff or shortcuts that you use all the time and make it easier to access. Me personally, uh, like I've mentioned before, I've grown up with video gaming on a mouse and keyboard. And so for me, the keyboard, having my hand, my left hand on the keyboard, pressing a bazillion buttons, and then keeping my hand on the mouse works really well for me, and I can get a lot done. And I do have a keyboard that's got built-in macros. But where I do see this being useful is in cases like um, ingesting, where you're going through a list of like a bazillion different clips, and you need to organize them and tag them and label them and do all that kind of stuff. Having a keypad that's just kind of dedicated to ingestion uh, can either like, you know, keep your hand off the mouse so you're using it for inserting or uh, uh, putting it next on the timeline uh, or, you know, for labeling, deleting, saying it's a good take or a bad take or other things like that. It just makes it go a little bit faster because anyone who's, I don't know, worked in retail or something like that or accounting or whatever, uh, you know, you, you build up a, a natural use of a nine, uh, a 10 digit pad without looking at it. So if you're able to do that, then by you programming all these keys, your fingers already have that muscle memory of where to hit what key. And then it's just a matter of remapping your brain to saying, well, when I hit what was one, it's actually going to do an insert edit. So uh, doing that can really help to speed up workflow. You can also just use it for very complicated stuff being like, oh, drag this clip into here and then apply this filter on it and then do this to it and bring that all into one button press. That's a little bit more advanced. Uh, I don't know even if the software that they advertise, uh, the free software they advertise in the Instructable can do that, but I know that Auto Keys can do that, and I'm a big fan of Auto Keys for doing some very crazy Well, and you could always link it with in uh, scripting in either After Effects, Premiere Pro, or Photoshop if you're trying to repeat multiple tasks. You could tie that yeah. button to a script. Yeah, and there's there's ways of doing that as well. Well, there's there's more complicated. There's a few editors I follow who like are like, I want to press a button and have it like apply this effect. And the only way to do it is for auto keys to go search for that piece of text on the monitor and then click on it for oh, him wow. and like move it and stuff like that. Just because there's certain limitations to the software. And so if you're really trying to be super uber efficient, uh, you need to get creative about your workarounds because not everything can be done with a shortcut key or with a script on Premiere, unfortunately. Uh, which I don't blame Premiere for because it's a very or Adobe for because they have very complicated software and it would be even more complicated if everything was scriptable and it'd be even more hard to use. So Can you think of an example where you couldn't get it done with a script and you'd really need to to have it like do multiple things simultaneously because I, I uh, nothing's coming to mind. 
Uh, sure. If you have a clip selected inside a Premiere, okay, and uh, you want to press one button and have that one button apply a green screen with a custom preset. Ah, uh, wouldn't you just See? save? Okay, I would just copy and paste. I would Control C a preset that I already set up, and Control V it across a bunch of. Right. Right, but it's one of those where, it, let's say you're working on several short videos, so you're opening up a new project each time, and then you're like doing other things in between, so you're using your clipboard for other activities. Uh, so it's just it, it's one of those where, like, if you want to be really efficient and you're doing a lot of short videos or something like that, imagine taking something like that, which is like five or six clicks, and making it one click. And even though you may only do it a couple of times a video, if you're doing five or eight videos a day, it can really help to speed things up, so... I have a, and I don't know if this is a thing that I'm the only one that uses it or what, but I have a clipboard uh, system, and it's like an mm-hmm. extra app that you run on your computer. I don't even remember what the hell it's called, but uh, it'll give you like three or four uh, clipboard savings or up to 10, and you can save them simultaneously. So then you can just select one, and that'll be in your clipboard when you're ready to control V to something, and then you can select two, and it'll do the same thing. Uh, I'm probably bypassing the whole point of what you're talking about, though. So I'm not no, going to no, talk no. about that's, that's That's a good solution, too. Uh, if you're very into clipboards, I'm more into dedicated macros because I like to do a lot of stuff without thinking too much about it. So once I have like a muscle memory built up, I don't have to think about it. But for other people... Uh, instead of like writing custom stuff for every single thing they do, it can just be easier to have multiple clipboards where just like, oh, on this project, I got this and this and this copy to these. And I just paste and paste that and paste that and do that. So, but there's a ton of built-in shortcuts to Premiere that you should learn first. If you're new at editing things like alt dragging clips, and there's lots of videos and tutorials about the basic shortcuts, which I think are incredible. And I think just learning uh, the uh, 20 or 30 most used shortcuts in Premiere will already make you 10 times faster at editing. Yeah, V V is really yep. handy, guys. So just remember that V, <laughs> V. All right, I'm done. Um, okay, so we've covered everything on the news. Devin, you got anything else before we get out of here, man? No, man, I'm good. All right, we've really, this has kind of been a weird show since uh, it has we got split up uh, YouTube if you guys are watching this, you made it to the second round of the show. Uh, for some reason, it stopped broadcasting, kicked Devin and I out of the live stream. Uh, we will be back next week with even more stuff. I don't know what's going on next week. Uh, Devin's got a review coming up from Asden, and I've also got a review coming out for that ceremonic system that I was talking about. Uh, one question that came in, and I want to address this really quick. A number of you have asked about the channel assignment for the ceremonic RX and TX10 system. It is in the 600 megahertz band range or uh, 600 megahertz spectrum uh, which is due to be auctioned off uh, they've threatened to auction off this year uh, it did get pushed back to next year so no idea when the 600 megahertz spectrum is going to go away uh, ceremonics did respond to my questions and told me that they will be releasing other models that are in different frequency ranges i.e the 500 megahertz spectrum so keep an eye out for those uh, be cautious if you live in the United States investing heavily into the 600 megahertz band because uh, if or when the FCC does decide to sell that frequency off, uh, you could be stuck with a bunch of wireless kit that is no longer useful. Uh, other than that, the audio quality on the ceremonic is great, but check out the review for that. Dev and I also look forward to your review. Did you get that microphone I sent you, by the way? Yeah, I got it. Ah, just want to make sure <laughs> I lost the tracking as soon as I sent him a Rode VideoMic Pro, so uh, I wasn't yep. sure when or if it would show up. On that note, yep. Devin, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Twitter at DevoCut. 
where I, I shout at people. You, oh yeah, I saw the, the loggers lunchbox thing. That's that's great, man. Uh, follow <laughs> Devin for little gems like that, and of course you can find this on iTunes, SoundCloud, and anywhere podcasts are distributed. My name, of course, is DJ from DSLRFilmNoob.com, and go there to check out more of my stuff. And we'll see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. 